Hi, I'm John Papola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. On this episode of the Emergent Order Podcast, I interview Lou Perez, the head writer and producer of We the Internet TV, which is a YouTube channel dedicated to bringing classical liberal and sort of free market oriented ideas to life through comedy, through comedy sketches and monologues and a whole range of interesting video content. It's always exciting for me to talk to somebody like Lou who's proven to be really prolific creatively. It's very difficult to do that and sustain it over time. And that's exactly what Lou has done with We The Internet. Like our prior conversation with my friend Andrew Heaton, Lou and I talk about the challenges of being funny with controversial issues in our day today, but but really hone in on the craft and how you get projects made and, and what it looks like to translate ideas into finished work. It's what we do at Emergent Order, and it's always fun to hear someone else's experience and perspective on it. So I hope you enjoy. Lou Perez, I, uh, I can't remember which of your videos was the first I'd seen, but when I saw it, whichever one it was, I remember being struck by, uh, this is maybe the second person I've encountered who can take classical liberal ideas and make them funny. <laughs> well, thank you, man. Uh, there's only two of us. If there's any more, we end up just getting rid of them. So, no, we have uh, to kill them off. We're in, yeah. We might be against zero-sum games in society as a whole, but in the world of classical liberal comedy, it is a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a Highlander rule when it comes to uh, making capitalism funny. Uh, so how did you first get into... How did you first get into comedy? Because I think, I feel like, you, you know, that's the first, one of the great things about, I think like you as a storyteller is you put the storytelling in the comedy first. Um, and, and so like, I guess, how did you get into comedy? Where did comedy start for you? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. It's a, it's a, you know, really um, kind thing of you uh, to say. I, I, I think the first time that I got into, I was always like a class clown, but a class clown who was also, um, really good in school. So it's sort of like you can mess around if you're getting good grades, you know, and there, there was never like a point where they're like, you know, you gotta, you gotta tone it down because you're not going to be going places. Um, so I, so I had that, I was very fortunate to be, uh, to doing well academically where I was able to get, get through some of this stuff. And in high school, I had a really, uh, really wonderful teacher. I went to, um, uh, St. Mary's high school in Manhasset. And I had an English teacher named Brother Jeff, Brother Jeffrey Pedersen, who was not only my English teacher, he was also, uh, uh, he was in charge, I guess, of the school newspaper. And I ended up being uh, a columnist for the school newspaper, and they would let me write satirical pieces. So it, so here I was- Let me just make sure, this is a Catholic school. A Catholic school, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so you have to, you know, so, so, you know, I I mean, I couldn't be too bold or or anything like (laughs) that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember writing a, a, a short story called like the greatest um, cockfighter in the world. And it was a literal like anthropomorphized rooster that was a cockfighter. And it was obviously my way to slip in the word cock in a <laughs> publication that, that's, uh, you know, that, that was uh, it. Yeah, the imprint of uh, this, Catholic, uh, this Catholic high school. But I had never uh, done like a school play. I think I was in one school play where I was, 
man number eight who just like helped move something across the uh, uh, across the stage. And it wasn't until college where I got in. Uh, I went to NYU, and I got into improv. And from improv, that went to sketch. And our sketch group ended up performing at the UCB Theater. And it was there where I was like, wow, I'm really getting into this and I want to do more of it. But all of the, you know, ideology or political stuff didn't come until until much later. So I already had, like, I guess, like a pretty solid foundation of, is this funny? And if it's not funny, how do we make it funny? And, and, and also uh, having the experience of performing in front of a live audience who doesn't lie to you. So, you know, you, you could be in your room, you know, with these, uh, you know, with these fantasies that you're going to go out there and kill, but if they're not laughing in real life, you got to ch- make some changes. Yeah. I, uh, I've never done stand up. So um, the closest I've ever come is just public speaking. And it's such a different thing to be in front of an audience and to ha- have to, f- there's an energetic um, feedback loop that's in real time. Mm-hmm. And it's really, uh, it's one, you know, I, I've given a bunch of public speak talks. And so anytime I can get anyone to laugh at all, it's usually through just self-deprecation or making incredibly nerdy inside jokes. Um, uh, it's like the most important part of the moment. Like I got them to laugh. Like, I don't care what else happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. I lost the debate, but man, <laughs> I got that laugh. I killed with, with the third row. Yeah, yeah. Um, wh- what, what was your... What was your peak comedic moment before you started to get into this more philosophical work that's, that's become part of what you do now? Yeah, I think uh, we, I, I have a, a, a duo called Greg and Lou. Um, the other guy's name is Greg, obviously. Uh, his name is Greg Burke. And, and we started um, performing together in college at NYU. And we were in such a, such a large group. It was called uh, the Hammercats. So there was like 15 of us, you know, uh, competing for stage time that everyone just kind of started breaking off into their little into their little groups the side projects like you know genesis you know so phil collins went off to do his thing mike rutherford mike and the mechanics oh my god i didn't think that was gonna why would i bring that up why why would i i I would purposefully (laughs) just just bring up genesis genesis Um, is always there below the surface so you just you just made the subtext text bubbling baby um so uh, we, we started doing our, our, um, uh, our stuff as a duo and we started making uh, videos pretty early on with when YouTube came around. And, it, and you know, for, for people who are just, who, who have you know, grown up with YouTube, it didn't always exist. And it was a really novel thing that, that you could make stuff and put it out there. And we got in at a time where you could literally just put like comedy video and our stuff would pop up in the search right. engine, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think that highlight- was back when they had those, because when uh, the first rap video came out, they had these like trending pages that were sort of at, on the homepage and getting, I think it still exists, but it's so buried now. But it used to be like top video in comedy or top video in education. And if you got on those, it would, it would help drive discovery of your stuff. Yeah, yeah. Big time. And uh, so our, I think we, we hit our peak with a video called Wolverine's Claws Suck. And uh, it's still available on, on YouTube. And it's about two guys who go to a doctor and they want to get uh, mutant powers, but they only have enough money to get one mutant power. So 
with Wolverine, it's either the mutant healing or the claws. So they make the big mistake of getting the claws. And, uh, and it's a very painful looking, uh, looking video. Um, and that blew up. And I think currently now it has over 19 million views on YouTube alone. Uh, and, you know, it, uh, a couple of years ago when Logan came out, uh, one of the coolest things was uh, we were contacted by uh, Alamo Draft House. So at the Alamo Draft House at this uh, theater chain, they will often play videos and uh, that sort of link up with the theme of the, uh, of the feature. And it's a Logan movie. It's about Wolverine. So they yep. asked to, to yep. play ours. So I got to watch uh, this video that we had made like 10 years before up on the, uh, on the big screen. So that, um, you know what? I, I could die a happy man if that's my peak, you know, that, that, right. that sounds, that sounds pretty good. Even though it's, uh, the video has been demonetized, I think like three years ago. So it's not making any money, but. No, our gravestones can be together, like made Hayek rap video on my gravestone, which I know is what it will be. I, already <laughs> know. I actually had it made a couple of years back. So I'm ready for that. And yours nice. can be uh, Wolverine's, you know, Wolverine's uh, claws suck. And that's yeah. that. If I'm cremated, maybe they could just like, you know, put me over your grave or something like that. We could, <laughs> that, that would be a collaboration, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then a kind of canceled like stamp with all, also featuring Lou Perez. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so when, so you, you're, when you were at NYU's, um, were you studying, well, what, well, like what was your major that you were doing improv while you were at school? Yeah, I was, uh, I was an English major for, I think, for the first year. And um, I wanted to be a poet, right? Because that, that's what you do when you go to an expensive college. You know, you, you want to be a poet. I'm the, I'm the son of a butcher who didn't graduate high school. And my mother, who did graduate high school, um, she's also a graduate of, um, uh, is it, is it Cosmo, Cosmopo Cosmetology School? Is that what they call it? Cosme She's a hairdresser, right? Yep, so yep. the son of a butcher and a hairdresser wants to go to NYU on a part, you know, I had a little bit of a scholarship there and to study poetry. And I, I had a class, I had a, a course with, uh, uh, with a professor and I was telling him like all the things that I wanted to do. And, and uh, he said, oh, you sound like a, like a Gallatin kid. And, and Gallatin is a school in NYU for individualized study, which is, you know, you make it up. Make up <laughs> so you know so i was on that is poetry wrong to path. say is this is this the short bus section of the school yeah, that... <laughs> yeah. exactly we, we can't uh, yeah, fit we... you into any any of the things that most people want so we'll let you play with puppies and cartoon characters you know i think there actually would have been a lot more money in, in playing with puppies than uh than what i what i was uh what i was after but right, right. um i went from uh, school of Arts and Science to this individualized study. And I think that, you know, that probably uh, opened me up to other possibilities. I had always wanted to, to try doing improv because uh, I, I liked, you know, messing around with my friends and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I never thought like, oh, hey, maybe that actually was like a kind of a direct link where it's sort of like, let me just open up the, uh, the, the possibilities. Was there... Um, did you ever come across Billy and Adam when you were in UCB? Uh, the guys that we cast for Canes and Hyatt, because I know they were also 
uh, I think they were part of Upright Citizens Brigade. We were, when I was at Spike, we worked with a bunch of different UCB folks, uh, and it was always a great source of like comedic talent. So yeah, yeah, they were they were NYU kids. They 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 had a a group called I think it was Harvard, Harvard Sailing S- Team. Yep, Harvard and Sailing Team. Yeah, so so there were days. There were shows, I think, where Hammercats and Harvard Sailing Team were on the same show at the UCB. And, and the way the UCB used to do it, which was really great, was they would pair up two shows. So it'd be like five, five bucks or 10 bucks to see two different groups. Um, and it's great because if you're, if you're a group that might not have you know, that big of, a, big of an audience, local audience, uh, maybe the group that you're paired up with would, would, uh, would have that audience. So it's funny, I didn't meet them at NYU, but I did meet them at the, uh, at the UCB Theater. What, um, so, uh, Andrew Heaton had said that improv and stand up tend to, tend to, um, attract two very different sort of personality types. He said like the, and which made a lot of sense to me, like improv groups in general, they tend to be the empaths, more sensitive, maybe a little more prone towards political correctness because of that sensitivity, because of that sort of like embody kind of actor like quality. Whereas stand-up tends to be way more iconoclastic, um, you know, way more uh, cut against the green, knock people off their, off their comfort zone. Um, does that jibe with your experience? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, in improv, you have warm-ups, right? You do these things to warm up, like whether it's counting down like, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, you know, blah, 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 you know, or, you know, zip, zap, zop and all that, which sounds, it sounds completely insane if no one's ever done uh, improv before, but it's a, it's a, it's a, a communal thing. You know, you're part of a collective. You're supposed to uh, help a scene that might, that might um, mean that you sacrifice yourself in, in the scene. Like you don't necessarily um, uh, have to be the funniest to make sure that a scene, you know, go, uh, uh, works, and it's a it's very different from from stand up comedy. So I didn't start doing stand up until I think it was like maybe 27, 28 years old. So I had all this time performing in improv or sketch. So when I went to do stand up, um, especially when I started hosting my own my own show, I wasn't the the host who's like, oh yeah, man, this this sucks. Like, why are we, you know, why are we here? What are we doing here? I was like, no, this is like a show. Like we have to, you know, <laughs> try to like, you know, at least fake it, at least fake that you're having a good time here. Um, and, but the energies are just so, um, you know, just so different. I think it's just, it's naturally going to be that way because of, you know, just the nature of, of what the, uh, what the genres call for. So you start to get, um, in, where, where do you get start getting interested in philosoph- the philosophical matters? You know, where, where does that where does that kick in? If that, if you didn't have that even into college, it's that's pretty surprising for me to hear. Like, I I was um, I was super I was super politically oriented even like as a kid. God knows why. And then I kind of set that aside for over a decade when I was working at MTV and Nickelodeon, and I was like, I'm gonna focus on my craft. That's just personal beliefs and stuff, and really doesn't have anything to do with making a rocket power movie trailer. And so, um, and then those things, those worlds collided, but you, you, it sounds like you came to that late. So what, was there like an inciting incident? Was there something that, you know, 
got you interested in ideas? Um, well, well, I think I've, I've, um, uh, when it really hit for me was I was in grad school because when you go to get like basically an English major and you don't know what to do after that, go to grad school, continue doing that. (laughs) Right, right, right. Uh, I can't find a job, so I should not try. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. Um, I should spend I, more money on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, why? How can I get a full time job when there might be an audition somewhere down the line at some point? You know, just um, I, I want to talk to that kid. I want to go back in time and talk to that kid um, one of these days if we ever, you know. Don't, don't pull on that string. The whole fabric will come undone. <laughs> right now, we just, we just fade out right now. <laughs> It'll be a back to the future, uh, you know. Uh, Polaroid vanishing sequence is going to happen. Two Um, references that no kid would even understand. No, not not at all. That Polaroid is just the name of a child now. Like it it doesn't have any of its old meaning. Um, But uh, yeah, when when it comes to you know uh, you know know, that stuff, I think I think one of the ways that I got in there was through sort of like the skeptics movement. So uh, I remember coming across Sam Harris uh, at one uh, at one time. And I remember, it, oh, yeah. in particularly when it comes to re- religion stuff. And at the time I was like, wow, this guy's saying so much of what I've been thinking and he's doing it so eloquently. So it was sort of like Sam Harris led me to Christopher Hitchens, but then within that is also Penn Jillette. And I was watching Penn Jillette's, uh, uh, Penn and Teller's bullshit, right? So it was all that like sort of being a skeptic, questioning things, um, trying to use, you know, uh, trying to use reason. And uh, when I was in graduate school, I was so lucky to uh, be in the program with um, a woman by, by the name of Carla, Carla uh, Herlika. Uh, and for those who, you know, might be familiar like with the Free State Project, Carla is, was, uh, was a, a, um, you know, a big presence in that, uh, in that movement. And we uh, we went on a on a writers retreat to Archer City, Texas, uh, where uh, what's his name Robert McMurtry, um, the 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 author of Lonesome Dove and uh, Brokeback Mountain, uh, lives there. It's it's literally a one streetlight town, uh, and I think I might have his name. Uh, I think it's McMurtry. Uh, my apologies if I if I get it wrong, uh, just in case he sees this. Um, <laughs> And Carla is a libertarian uh, anarchist, uh, you know, at, at the time, and me and, and other, you know, members of the uh, of the program were, were all hanging out in the living room, and politics come up, and people start talking about you know politics and ideas, and I'm kind of hanging back, and they're all going after Carla, you know, hmm. they're all asking, you know asking these pointed questions that Carla has to defend, right? Like, well, who will what do you build mean? the roads, Carla? Exactly, exactly. All that, all that stuff that, you know- Who will be able to, to pour concrete, Carla? Yeah, we're able to, all that stuff that, 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 that you know, we, we hear all the, all the time. So some of the questions she has answers to, then other questions she doesn't. And she says, I don't know how that's gonna work, but I would really like to find a way to do that without initiating force. No, and I'd never heard about non-aggression principle or anything like that. And I was really just, just blown away by, like, here's a person who's standing up for herself in the middle of this, of, uh, you know, an angry, you know, angry bunch of MFAers. 
and uh, and that helped kind of get me down, um, bring me down that that road, and um, uh, and I think and yeah, I, I found Lisa Magazine and Cato and, and and that sort of thing, and and I think I'm very different in in many ways. I'm you know much different than I was when I was 25 years old, um, but. Uh, but it, it's it's definitely played a huge role in my life and, and and how I'm going about it. How old were you when you had that experience? Like when you're you're sitting in the room, listening, watching this, uh, watching Carla get grilled. Yeah, I wonder if I, I wonder if I was like, was I 26 or 27? I uh, if if I if I go back, I'm, I'm really bad with time. I'm sort of a I'm, I'm sort of a, a William a walking William Faulkner, where just history is just just there. Um, it, it's always, it's always with me. I'm always a six-year-old boy and a 12-year-old. Yeah. And a you're, you're Dr. Year old. Manhattan. You're experiencing <laughs> yeah. all of reality simultaneously. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I was definitely, I was in my, uh, my mid, uh, mid twenties. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and I, I was thinking about it actually the other, the other day, because there was a time where as, uh, as skeptical as I, as I thought I was, uh, I, I was, uh, there was a time where I, if I read something that was in print, you know, in particular, I'd be like, oh, wow, that must be how, how it is. And then I would read something that counters it. And I'm like, oh, but that must be how it is. And, and I was very gullible. And also, like, I couldn't believe that people would actively lie. Like, why would you lie in a book? Like, why would you spend 300 pages lying to people? Uh, I know it's really pathetic. It's really, really pathetic. But I had an experience where I read the it's shock. It's not a doctrine. lie if you believe it yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I read the shock doctrine by Naomi Klein, and uh, after it's reading a, it's that, a great exercise in yeah. five hundred pages of dishonesty. Yeah. So I read that, and I hated Milton Friedman. How could you not hate Milton Friedman? This, this, this monster. You know, he's a monster. And I, and I, I guess literally I raised Augusto Pinochet from the moment he was born. Exactly. He was suckling, you know, Pinochet on 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 his uh, on right. his free market yeah. teat. Um, and I, I read that, and I was so angry. Blah blah blah. And uh, and then I I, I I I searched YouTube, and there was a really good um, response from Johann Norberg. To, oh, I remember that video. The yeah. shock. He was like. Um, it was yeah. He was uh, interviewed by Michael Moynihan, and it was like, oh my God, this he just in ten minutes he cut through her argument, you know, and did it so well. Um, so it's sort of all that stuff together, you know. Uh, and just for for the viewer who hasn't come across that book and thinks we're just skewering her 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 thesis, rem, remind me now. I, her thesis is basically that the only way that free market oriented policies come about is in the in the sort of stammering aftermath of some kind of cataclysmic shock yeah. and that's when all like the chicago boys rush in and push through some free market program because we know that that's what happens that when there's a crazy public nightmare event like a pandemic you get massive deregulation <laughs> and, right and i i think one of the most if i remember from that um norberg uh, interview he points out that there's been f far more movements towards freer market, more pro-capitalism policies from advanced democracies like the Scandinavian countries post 1980s. Mm -hmm. Then there have been this shock doctrine theory. Like it's like, okay, did the COVID-19 pandemic make America more free market? Like 
governor's telling you to stay in your house. Is that Milton Friedmanite? Is that the, is that the Milton? I forgot. I, I don't know where lockdowns were, what page lockdowns were in Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman, but I guess they're in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's also making, uh, I, I think that had a big impact on me where, with the idea that you know definitions matter. And I wanna make sure that when I'm having a conversation with somebody that we're talking about the same thing. So it's like, well, when I talk about the free market, I mean one thing, what do you mean when you talk about the free market? Because you know, I, I don't like occupational licensing laws. Like, what, what do you mean by, by the free market? Are you talking about, you know, mercantilism? Like, you know, um, and, and I, I think that that's really important, especially for guys like us kind of in the, in the minority in order to have these conversations. It's like, let's be as specific as we can be um, and, and actually you know, get results from that rather than just sort of dancing around these, these, these odd definitions that people put on words. So when, what is your definition of capitalism? Let's start there. I guess I, what, what, I, what I see as capitalism is, is, a, um, is a system of property rights and voluntary exchange of, of goods and services. There, I'm, I'm sure there's a more, you know, the, you know a better definition there, but that, that's always how, I, how I've seen it. So give me, give me an example of, you know, an experience where that was the first point of like reorientation in a conversation with somebody who's like, you know, you're out with friends, it's a mixed group, you know, you become, you, the token libertarian in the group, become the subject of the conversation. <laughs> and so you're put in that position that Carla was in. It's like, okay, Lou, so like, uh, you know, you're Mr. Capitalism, comedy capitalism guy. <laughs> where do you start? Like, how do you how do you lay the groundwork for that conversation to not be to be productive to be something that you can have find some shared humanity find some common ground and then debate the differences yeah i th um there there was an incident i guess that ha an incident that happened years <laughs> ago that um i was uh when i lived in in los angeles i was staying uh with a, a friend at, at the time i was renting a room um in his house and we had other sort of like writers, comedians over, and um, they were talking about, you know, just like business in, in, in general. Uh, and what, what, I, what I'm always interested in is, you know, sort of, uh, you know, what, you know what, what sort of firsthand experience do you have in something? Because I'm, I'm very, very willing to admit that I, if I don't have firsthand experience in something. So, uh, for example, I don't, I don't run a business, right? But I, my father is a butcher and we have a family business. So there are certain realities that we face running a business that uh, a lot of people who've never run a business before don't you know, don't know. So in this conversation at the time, there was a lot, a lot of words being thrown around like greed, you know, greedy people and all that. Um, and when I was talking, you know, when I was talking to them, I was trying to get to, well, what are some other factors that are just there in business that you have to deal with before greed even comes into the picture? You know, overhead, um, you know, uh, what, yeah, what kind of overhead, you know, is it, is it rent? Is it uh, um, electricity? Is it buying the products? Is it, you know, uh, how much, how expensive, uh, how expensive is it to actually have workers, right? And it's like, that whether you're the greediest person in the world or you know the most uh, you know altruistic person in the world, 
those are realities that you have to contend with. Um, so, so I try to not, you know, I, I don't, uh, I, I try not to be a dick, you know, but it's like, hey, you know, there might be things here that you're not seeing that you're not that, that, that you don't know about that might change the way you're looking at this whole dynamic. The um, so I want to uh, I want to hear about what drives the the, 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 the the styles that you pursue on on your different shows on We the Internet. So 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 start with sort of how you got involved with with um, MPI and with this. YouTube channel that you've, um, you know, really spearheaded. And uh, I, I want to just hear the origin, like what, how does it work? Like it's, there's so much great content. You've been very prolific at it. And um, you know, what was the starting point and how have you kind of sustained so much, so many different forms and formats? Thanks. Yes. Yeah. So um, some years back, I was lucky enough to go to uh some friends of uh, friends of mine, uh, Ted and Courtney Ballacher, um, they they uh, made the awesome documentary. Can we take a, can we take a joke in the movie Little Pink House? So if any of your your listeners haven't seen those, you know, please check those out. I think they're I think they're available on Amazon. Um, so I when I was heading out to L.A. to go move there, uh, one of the great things about social media is that you have the opportunity to connect with people who whose work you've, you've enjoyed before. And Ted had produced a lot of stuff for, for Reason TV. So I hit him up and said, hey, I'm moving out to LA. I'd love to you know, yeah. uh, grab a, a drink with you or something like that. And they're very friendly people. And we got to, uh, I got to meet up with them. And they invited me to this, this one day um, seminar about film distribution. And I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't at a point where I had a film or anything like that. But, you know, uh, I think there was lunch provided and that's, and that's, and anytime lunch is provided, I'll, I'll go anywhere, you know, well, sandwiches a, lose hell like, yeah. I'm in, I'm in man. Uh, <laughs> if I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm going keto, I'll just take the bread off, bro. Just eat whatever's in the middle of it. Uh, so, you know, so I went to, uh, so, so I went to this event and I met, uh, Lana Link, uh, who yep. works for, for MPI. And Lana was doing, uh, she was like a kind of like talent scouting uh, in a way. And uh, they introduced me to her and said, hey, Lou does uh, sketch comedy. And she said, oh, it's great. We're, we're looking to do sketch comedy that also involves you know, like politics and, and culture. And at the time, I'd never really, I I'd never combined these two things. I, I, I really just kept these things separate. And and at the time, I wasn't even one of those people that was so vocal on like Facebook or anything like that with my opinions that yeah. um, I actually maintained, I think, more friendships at the, t <laughs> at the time. As, as anyone that knows me on Facebook knows, the, 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 it, it, the platforms promote, they don't bring out your best self. It's not like come to Facebook or Twitter where you can be warm and inviting to people that differ from you. It's more like come and become a firebrand or get the hell out of here if you're not screaming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's, it would be like, it would be the equivalent of like Instagram. If every time you posted a picture on Instagram where you had abs, Instagram just like, like erased your abs and just gave you a pot belly. So it's like, you could never be your best self like on, on this, on this it's, thing. It's like every, t it's like visiting the Costanza's house <laughs> every Every time it's like, let me check. It's like, now I've got a uh, Jerry Stiller screaming in my face. And the only way I can be heard is if I scream back. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, 
so I, I never combine I, I never combined the two the two things, um, but when you know when given the opportunity to to pitch ideas to to WTI and, and I didn't have anything to do with the founding of it and at the time there were a lot of different voices actually you know all working on it, um, so I pitched my own ideas, and it was it was real it was a lot of fun to challenge myself to see like how can you take something that is controversial and make it funny uh, and perhaps thought, you know, thought provoking. So one of the, you know, one of the uh, first videos I, I made was uh, that, that I pitched was a, uh, a PR guy uh, meets up with uh, basically a, a SWAT team. And, you know, he has to explain to him like, you know, we love, we love SWAT. We love the, we love the police, but, um, if you guys want the people to, to stay on your side, don't shoot the dog, like stop <laughs> shooting dogs on all of your raids. And it's like, because people don't care about the constitutional, you know, aspects of it, the, you know, uh, any of the bill of rights, they just care about, you just shot a, a really cute Yorkie, you know? Uh, so it was like, oh, cool. I can, I, uh, how can I take those ideas and, 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 and work it together? And, um, so I pitched, uh, I think it was five ideas at the start. I was uh, given a little bit of, uh, you know, given a little bit of a budget. And it turns out that I actually, I'd gone over budget and it started taking money out of my own, uh, my own account to pay for, the, for, for some of these productions because I really saw that there was great potential here. And I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to show that I can produce and I, and I, could, and I could do this. And uh, uh, little by little, I, I uh, worked my way up to uh, a head writer position and then to a, to a producer uh, position. And it's something I, I didn't see myself going that route ever. Um, I was out of the, the duo of Greg and Lou, I'm, I'm more of the, how do you say, the lazy one. Um, I'm not the guy who edits. I'm not the guy who directs. I'm not the guy who's like, hey, we really need some more rewrites. You know, I'm sort of the guy where, yeah, I got ideas and stuff like that and I'll do my part. Um, so this opportunity really took, uh, brought that, uh, brought that out of me, that, 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 that ambition and also um, uh, a work ethic that, you know, I, I guess hadn't been there in a while. And uh, um, so it's been, it's been, you know, a few years of, of, of that. And, uh, uh, you know, here we are. So I remember that. I remember that um, the SWAT team video and in, a, in an act of incredible woven crossover, Billy Scafuri, yeah. Keens, is in that video. I remember. He, he plays a character. Yeah, his nickname is Silver Surfer. He, he chose I, a cool nickname. <laughs> I, remember, I remember at the time I saw it and I was like, oh, this is a great video. But then I was also like, well, I know Billy's not like a libertarian. So how, he, what is he thinking? Like these libertarians keep hiring me to do weird comedic role. <laughs> well, well, that's a, you know that that's the thing too about working in this space with um, with politics and, and a big and a big reason why uh, if if viewers were to sort of go back to earlier WTI stuff from say three or four years ago, they might not see me in it as much as they as they do now over the past uh, couple of years because there was that hesitation there of working with people where it's like, oh man, is this actor going to be comfortable with this subject matter? You know, we, we never think about it in terms of like a movie where someone plays a murderer or something like that. Would they be comfortable playing a murderer? But 
something where it's like, uh, you know, this actor feel comfortable like taking a different stance on on guns or tax policy, you know, and and it got to the it got to the point where, you know, when you're creating stuff, you don't you don't you don't want that that anxiety there of like, oh, is so and so going to like it, especially if you believe in it so much. Where uh, you know, finally, I was just like, look, I'm a performer. Uh, if this thing is too controversial, I'll just do it. I'll be the guy. I'll, I'll be I'll be the face of it. Um, but yeah, I do wonder, you know, what do, uh, th there are some people where uh, we have a, uh, a video called Burglars for Gun Control. And uh, <laughs> it's right there, man. That's what, you know, that's what the title that's is. It. And then uh, you've got a good concept, you know, they're, they're, the idea of the log line, you, you know, yeah. people like to, people like to trash like the, the simplification process like oh it's all it, it, you're just dumbing down my complex idea but if you can't sell it in a line there really is probably something missing there's something right. that isn't there yet yeah and uh, and and the actors that, that we that we had in it were fantastic they're all friends of mine um uh scott blair he, he was on a um uh he was in a, a comedy group called magic hugs that uh, he has some some of his sketch comedy like I go back to multiple times a year because he's he's so funny he's hilarious and he played a major part a major role in that video that blew up that was blowing up on the blaze the blaze network you know were, was sharing this and a lot of you know right-wing pro-gun people were sharing it and it's one of those things where I'm like I loved working on it with him but man I really hope that this doesn't hurt him down the road because i'm not thinking i mean you know we're not necessarily thinking how many steps ahead you know we're not thinking like all the years down the road like man is he gonna lose out on something because he was in one of my silly videos i hope that's not the case i mean I, it's it has gotten where things are at now for anyone who's in like the public eye is weird it never would have you know if Everybody I worked with at Spike TV would surely be canceled if our writers' rooms were accessible through a Google Doc on Twitter. Like, there's no world in which any of those, any of that would have survived. Mm -hmm. And um, have have you seen that impact your collaborations as far as just like what can be, how open you can be in a creative process? You, you know, if you're not working with people who are like you know, you really trusted where you feel like you can crack jokes and they're not going <laughs> to take offense. I mean, what, how has that, how has that sort of cancel woke culture impacted your creative process? Yeah. So I think, I think one, it, uh, well, and I think in any creative capacity, especially when you're, when you're working with, um, with writers, it, it's so tough to find people who are really good writers that you could, you know, rely on. And, you know, you produce a, a ton of stuff too. So it's like, when you find someone who's writing you love, it's like, oh, this is the best thing, uh, the best thing ever. And, and sort of what, what's happened with, with We The Internet uh, over the years is that the collaborations that I've made have been with you know, relatively you know, small like handful of writers that I trust, who enjoy working uh, on the stuff that we're working on, um, who you know, can put up with me, uh, which, is, you know, which, is, which is fantastic. Um, and, so, so with these discussions that we have, that, that we have, uh, it's a, it, it's coming from a place of we trust each other, and 
we're also not looking for ways of, ooh, I'm gonna, I wonder if I could use this against this person down the road, uh, which it almost feels like some of the, you know, some of the garbage that I see on Twitter, it's like people are, are you know, bringing up stuff that happened in conversation or text messages or private messages from years ago as a way to taking down someone now that I just think it's so gross. The, um, so what, in the past year, what's been your favorite show or format or, or, you know, what have you done in the past year that you're most, that you would say is just like really popped, really worked and why? Um, well, well, I think the tough thing is that sometimes you think what works so well for you doesn't necessarily work for view counts. You know? Right. Sure. Um, and, um, you know, so that's been a, this is just uh, the Lou. It doesn't need to be highest view count. It's like, it's right. just the Lou meter, the Lou meter, the Lou meter. Um, well, I, I, we, we, we released uh, something recently, um, called, um, uh, super villains are bad at business. And, uh, it's, um, it was written by, uh, Brandon Basham, who's one of the guys who I collaborate with, uh, um, you know, the, one of the guys I collaborate with the most. And it was based on, you know, sort of what I call a Lou Perez dream, where uh, it's a parody of Captain Planet. And I just remember thinking like, man, these, these, these Captain Planet supervillains are cartoonish, but cartoonish beyond it, them being cartoons, where it's like, none of the, none of the stuff they're doing seems to make any business sense whatsoever. <laughs> like, they're burning a lot of money. You know, like just like burning the, the, like just, you're just going to pollute water. Like that's your thing, man. Like how do you even, <laughs> how do you monetize that? Um, so I've got all this leftover aluminum. What should I do with it? We should feed it to seals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think we should melt it down to make more of the thing we make. No, nope, yeah. feed it to seals. Feed it to seals. That's what, that's what, that's what we're going to do. Um, so this was a really, so, so this was a fun collaboration where we're able to, to take that idea uh, Brandon did an amazing job scripting it. We worked with uh, Tim Ingle uh, on, on animation. Uh, Tim was able to animate it. I was able to bring in um, my good friend, Scott Hampton, to do the music on it and then work with um, uh, you know, voiceover artists. So it was one of these things where it's like, what I'm, what I'm proud of it is, it's, it's this tiny idea that I had, just, a, just one little observation that can turn into a six minute animated animated thing. Um, so I'm hoping that one day it blows up and people are just loving it and like, oh my God, this is the, uh, the greatest thing ever. But, uh, uh, you know, being able to say that I, you know, I made something like that is, is uh, it, 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 it's, it, there's an, a, a reward there in, in itself. You know, I had the same, you know, years and years ago, uh, early in the life of Emergent Order, I wrote this um, video with Max Borders that was it was right in my wheelhouse having spent years in Nickelodeon called the cronies where it was it was a 90s send up to the old toy commercials based mm -hmm. on a cartoon and it was a very similar type of thing and I and I was so proud of it I was like this is gonna go this is gonna have more views than the Kings versus Hyde videos and um and it didn't it didn't it, it did get a little bit of earned media like news coverage sort of but it didn't get the 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 takeoff that I would have thought it would have gotten. And it's so, it's so weird what clicks and what mm -hmm. doesn't click. It's, um, 
have you observed, have you noticed trends in terms of the, your, like the, is there things that you've seen? Cause I think you're, you know, we've always been as a company, um, more sporadic. We work on, sometimes we'll work on a feature film and it'll take three years. Sometimes we'll work on a, a short piece, but we're not sort of constantly feeding our YouTube channel with new content. This podcast is, is, is exists frankly, because it's a way of putting ideas out there on a more regular basis than like our video production tends to. Mm -hmm. um, what, what patterns have you observed as far as like what actually like clicks with audiences and what sort of doesn't like, have there been surprises? Have there been things you've noticed like, oh yeah, well, whenever we talk about, you know, identity politics, that pops, or if, it, or if it's oh. like, you know, if it's a sketch thing that pops, but if it's like a talk, if it's just like a monologue, those are a lot harder. Oh, I think, yeah, I, I think you, I think you nailed it with, with identity politics. That seems to be the stuff that's on, that's on every, everyone's mind. Um, and, you know, it's a, ch it's a challenge there. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, the wokesters, uh, if, if, if you will, like, you know, they definitely open themselves up to a lot of, um, you know, being made fun of, but when you have so many people hopping on that, it, it, uh, it could be tough to find, you know, what's this new angle. And, and we often, you know, I often get, I often get that where, you know, people will sometimes comment and be like, wow, you're really making fun of the left a lot lately. And it's like, uh, you know, and I, and I take that, you know, I, I take that into, into consideration because, you know, what we're trying to do, we're trying to be funny and we're trying to be original. And if you take a figure like, say, Donald Trump, where every professional comedian is, is making fun of this guy, is taking the piss out of him, every, uh, you know, hobbyist online is taking the piss out of him, it only, like, you have to have a really creative way to, you know, to take this, uh, to take this guy on. Um, and I think that's sort of a similar thing, like what, with identity politics, too, like how, how are we going to, to take this on? So one of the ways, uh, one of the, uh, the last videos that, that did, that, that did pretty well, um, it was about a service called political opinion surrogates. So like, if you're a, if you're a straight white guy, who's afraid to, you know, uh, have an opinion on any controversial subject, uh, this service will, uh, you can hire somebody of that protected class to say what your exact opinion is. But since it's coming out of their mouth, they are now allowed to, uh, um, to, to say that. Um, so I think, I think issues of identity politics, uh, free speech, I think those are, um, th those are some of the ones that, that are our, um, our biggest uh, hits. Have you, um, one of the things that's, I think, so hard for being like a principled classical liberal now is the 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 ground that we have where we can be like here's our little here's where we stand sh is shrinking from kind it feels like it's shrinking from all sides so um everybody seems to be defined by the negation by like what they're opposed to mm. and then you realize like oh i don't like ju okay just because you hate that too but i don't like you very much so please don't just like you know you kind of take a knock at identity politics and then some of the people that come alongside and say, yeah, you're like, no. Right, right. What, how have you dealt with that? How have you, like, have you experienced that sense? Like the kind of, um, like, how, how do you deal with the audience in terms of people that will come in and comments and, and sort of, it gets gross because it's the internet and right. 
you know, and so you're, you're finding yourself, you know, forced into alignment with people that on many other issues, you're like pretty opposed. Mm-hmm. I know I, I run into that all the time, just even in conversation, but. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to report that some of my, the, some of my favorite comments that we get are the ones that say, I love you guys. I don't agree with you on everything, but I like what you're doing. And I know that, um, you know, you're, you're doing it in good faith, no matter what you're doing, whether it's, you know, making a joke or, or anything like that, it, it's being done in good faith. And I know that if I don't like this video, there's probably something down the line that I'm going to like. And it's crazy how rare that is, you know, um, it's, it's tough. And, and I, I, I see it also with <laughs> like issues of like free speech issues, right. Where, uh, you know, you take free speech, uh, free speech warriors, if you will, like, like Nat Hentoff, um, and what, you know, the ACLU and what they used to be, where it's like principled people on the left, when it came to free speech, they will defend everybody's right, uh, to free speech. Right. And how that has shifted so much, uh, over the years where now free speech has become a right of center thing where it should be a universal thing. Like, it's, like this, if there's one thing we should all be able to agree on, it should be this thing. And I see people um, sometimes where they're put in this, in this position where it's like they've lost their friends on the left, right? And the people who are saying like, hey, we're, we're welcoming, you, welcoming you over here to our side, they're like, but I'm not on your side. Like I'm on your side for this really specific thing. Um, but then, you know, you put yourself in a position because it's, it's like, well, how do you feel about um, criticizing both sides now? Because uh, in a way, it's like, uh, you know, you run the risk of alienating uh, everybody until you're just sort of a, uh, um, an island to yourself. And I, I have a friend of mine who is uh, in, in writing, uh, he, he's written quite a bit where he calls out the right for, uh, for not being free speech advocates. Um, and he, he makes those, you know, he makes those call outs and I'm like, damn, I wonder what, you know, what's going to happen because it's sort of, is he going to be invited to speak before, you know, organizations and all that, if that organization happens to, happens to be on the right of the political spectrum. Um, so I think I'm being vague. I kind of want to protect him, you know, you know in a way, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's a tough, it's a tough thing where, you know, what do you do when the people being nice to you would otherwise be your enemy? You know, it's, yeah, it's um, it's it, I've uh, how do you think about your your job or your mission at We the Internet in terms of persuasion? Because I've always seen myself as somebody that wants to get ideas I care about out there into the world to be persuasive, to be accessible to someone who's not already hardcore on my side on an issue, but is like. I didn't think of it that way. I mean, I, and part of that is just the experience I've had with the rap videos. So, I, so many times I get these messages, like, you know, almost once a month still, where it's like, I never thought of this this way. Like my, my, my film school, my first film school professor, Simon, had like a kind of revelatory experience from watching the videos, which I, is like the highlight of my life. Um, and he was like a Stan Brackage in experimental film, like, Marxist kind of guy, not super into politics, but if he was, he was kind of a Marxist. It, it feels harder now. It feels harder to 
find an audience that's gonna be open to something that doesn't, that maybe triggers them a little bit or sort of rhymes with other things that they're, that they, they don't like those people. So, I mean, have you been feeling that? How do you, you know, is it, does it worry you? Like, how do you think about persuasion? Yeah, I, I um, a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece um, for Cato Unbound um, and they did like a, like a comedy issue. And um, I think it was titled something like my, my comedy nightmare. And the nightmare that I have is um, it was at a time where I was doing a lot of live speak, um, uh, live speaking in front of like mostly like libertarian college kids. Right. And the particular nightmare that I have, the fear that I have is I go out there and I'm saying what I'm saying and nobody's laughing and everyone's just clapping, you know? So it's just sort of that fear of, Oh, am I just speaking, you know, preaching to the choir? Um, you know, are people, only liking this because they they see their ideas expressed. So your rather... comedy nightmare is all the late night shows actual audiences now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Just just wooting clapter. Yeah, but but a... but there's a yeah the the, the key difference is I, I don't have that uh, I don't have their salary. You know, so right, right, it, it would be much less of a nightmare, I guess. If, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, if I had those uh, those zeros in the at the end of the uh, number on the check. Um, so there's something there where, uh, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you, uh, take on these issues without sounding like an activist, you know, without, without sound, you know, and, and it's an ongoing thing. It, it really is. It, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. And, um, I think sometimes what, what, what keeps me going is, is the idea of even if, if I can get a little joke in there that ribs the side that I'm supposedly an ally with, you know, that then, then that feels better. So one of the, one of the recent videos we, re we re released was a video called uh, uh, Chicken Hawks with PTSD. So for those who don't know, apparently there's a, a, a few definitions of chicken hawks, but the definition that I went with with this is, are people who advocate for wars they will never fight in, you know? So it's like the rah-rah, let's go to war. Uh, I'm an able-bodied man, but I'm going to send other able-bodied men off the war while I sit back here. Um, so this was all, you know, these chicken hawks and, and what they're going through. You know, it's like <laughs> war is hell for other people and, and, and putting themselves through it. And, you know, the, the, for uh, a lot of that, at least when I was, uh, when I was in college, it was, it was the Iraq war and that a lot of people on the right were, you know, were, uh, seemed to be pushing for. We, we forget that both Democrats and Republicans gave the president the authority to, you know, have his way uh, in, in the Mideast. But I remember seeing a lot of conservative, young conservative guys talking about, yeah, let's go, let's go to war. So naturally, you know, the people that we're making fun of would be, you know, on the right. So it's like, here's my opportunity where I may have done a video in the past that the right is like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. Screw these lefties. And now I'm able to do something where it's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm messing with you now. Um, so, you know, there's an opportunity there to, uh, you know, to, to make that play when, when, when we can. Yeah. I, um, I feel that way, like these days, especially with immigration issues, it's just the, you know, I, I, I don't see how the libertarian position can be anything other than pretty as close to open borders as you can reasonably be. I mean, it's like the human movement around the planet is like a basic right. Um, not that you get to move around and own other people's stuff, but like, 
I can, I can walk from here to there. And the fact that somebody drew a line and said, now nah, you're somewhere else. Eh. Um, but man, does that, that triggers right wingers sure. big time. Yeah. And, and, and on that, and, and, and what I, you know, what, what I like is, is sort of, um, you know, just take something like immigration and it's like, it's such a complex issue and there's so many different, you know, different sides of it. So how do we find the original way of, of taking it on? So I'm, I'm the son of an immigrant. My, my dad is from, is from Argentina and he came over uh, in the seventies. Uh, he, uh, he's been a citizen, I think maybe for like 10 years now or, or, or something like that. Um, I am the product of, you know, an, an immigrant's dream. I am a product of, of this man's uh, American dream. And so uh, I know that I mean, it's, it's not like, oh, and someone needs to listen to my opinion on immigration just because of that. Like the, my argument should stand, you know, on, on their own. But I remember, you know, hearing people talk about how, you know, Trump is a dictator, Trump is a fascist. Trump is, is doing all this, you know, really horrible stuff. And when I hear that, what I'm, what I'm hearing is you're telling immigrants to stay out. Like, don't come here, at least for the next however many years until we get this guy out, then it'll be safe to come here. And I think there's, there, I think there's an opportunity for comedy there for sort of holding people to those arguments. You know, it's like, it's like if, uh, you know, if he is such an awful person, then I don't know what, I don't think you want to just allow people to just, you know, stream, you know, stream in and, 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 and let him have their, have his way with them. Um, but you know, that that's, I guess it's my, my weird take on it. <laughs> the, uh, what's the hardest, um, what was the hardest creative challenge to, to crack an idea and find a comedy angle in? that you can, that, that come, that pops to mind. I'm sure there's plenty over the, over the years, but when you think like, man, I'm happy with where that came out, but Oh, at the start of it, I was just lost. And the first set of ideas that came to mind sucked, which is always the case. But I mean, like, especially so like, I didn't, I didn't think I'd make my way out. I think I, I was trapped in the dark place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfunny hellscape. <laughs> Well, uh, we, we have a video called um, ESL Students Learn New Gender Pronouns. Um, so there's that, vi that video. And uh, I had the idea for a while. Um, and it was so one of those... What is an ESL those, student? Let's start there. Oh, uh, English as a second language. So, uh, so, you know, people who do not speak uh, English as a first language are coming and they're learning these new pronouns, uh, these new gender pronouns uh, in particular. And I had the idea for a while... And for some reason, like I could just never bring myself to start writing it. Like I was just, it's like uh, the idea is there, whatever. But I, I just, I just don't have the energy for it. Maybe I just had other stuff on my mind. So I asked this other writer to write it, and he wrote a first draft, and it sucked. And I gave notes, and he wrote a second draft, and it sucked. And I was like, Ugh, is this thing ever going to happen? And then I was like, another buddy, I was like, can you take a look at this, man? Can you can you write it? And he wrote another draft. And it sucked. So we're like, you know, three or four drafts in and this thing sucks. And then I'm like, all right, I guess I'll write it. Let me rewrite. So then I rewrite it. And we would do this thing where uh, we would often book out a shoot date, like even before the script was done. So gives you, gives this, you a deadline. That's fine. I know. Yeah, it definitely gives you a deadline. 
uh, a deadline where we're having, you know, however many crew members and we need to find actors and all that. And so we had, I think, booked this shoot on a, for a Friday and it's Thursday and I'm still working on this script. And I finally worked, uh, finally, uh, worked on it with, with my buddy, Greg, my, my partner, he came up with a really good button and it's like, okay, I guess the script is done. Uh, but we don't have an actress to play the lead. So the now day before we're the shoot. The day, yeah, the day before the shoot, because yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's the best way to, to do this thing. Um, so we're calling like every actor we know in New York to say, like, do you have a friend who could just, you know, who could do this? And I think we ended up casting, um, uh, casting the actress. I don't even think she auditioned. I think she just kind of showed up and it was on the recommendation of a friend saying she's a real pro. She's awesome. And her name's uh, Shelly Shinoy. She does a lot of voiceover work and stuff and she's fantastic. And so we get there and, and we, you know, we shoot this sketch in, in this location and we do this thing sometimes too, where we'll book multiple shoots on the same day. So that day, I think we shot like 24 pages of dialogue. Which is insane. You're giving me heartburn as a. Yeah, see, I, yeah. I came out of the what, I came out of the pampered world, where we would shoot sixty seconds in a day. Oh, Maybe the most I've shot in a day scripted is five pages of script in a day. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, and and I I had roles in in both of these things, and I'm terrible at memorizing lines. So that's. Helpful, helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm you know real pro, real pro, Lou. Uh, I wrote it, but I I I instantly forget it after I've printed out the third draft. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are words anyway? Why? What is communication? Why is this needed? Um, and uh, you know, so we shoot that, and we have no idea what's going to happen with any of this stuff. Greg edits it. Uh, we like it, but we end up making like a big cut and moving things around. And at, at this point, I'm, I don't even know what this is, man. Like what, it, what, you know, what is this? It was, we did it. Okay, fine. And then we release it and it blew up and it did really well. And it, it, it blew up so much that I think it was, a, it was ripped. Like somebody ripped, like stole it and has like millions of views on their page. And right. Stuff, that, like, the... <laughs> which is the, yeah, the, the, the bane of our existence on, um, on social media. But that was, you know, that, that was one of those things where it's like every step of the way was a hassle. Every step of the way was just heartburn and, you know, like, oh, are we going to be able to, to do this thing? And then it, it turned out it, it, it worked. And that was, I guess, you know, it's one of, the, one of the few ones that was that hard to get going that, you know, actually made some noise. One of the things I think um, people don't, appreciate and i found i found this to be true even in uh even inside of like very even very creative people in creative firms and creative like networks is how little the idea matters and how much the execution matters mm -hmm. um just talk to me about that and your experience with it just like the difference between i think we all sort of obsess with the idea with mm -hmm. this sense that like oh i've got this idea but then the difference between the same idea well executed and the same idea poorly executed, it might as well be two different ideas. Like the execution is everything. Oh, What's yeah. your experience of that? Like how, how, and how have you learned that lesson? Well, well I, I, I recently had someone reach out who's been a, who's been a fan and uh, 
they said something like, if you ever need any ideas, I got a lot of ideas. And it's like, um, you know, I think I, I probably took a minute to just like nodding my head on the other side of my, my computer screen because I think you, you nailed it. It's like, no, no one is short for ideas. You know, we, we all have those ideas, but it's like, what can we do with it? You know, what, how can we turn that into, uh, into something? And um, I think it's one of those things where anytime it's, it's a collaborative effort and you have, especially if you have bosses to please, you know, it's like, you know, what stays and what goes is often, you know, determined by the vision that the people you're working for uh, have. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so some ideas that, that we've had, I think, uh, I thought would work better as a monologue and probably didn't, <laughs> you know, it probably would have been better, you know, scripted like a more narrative uh, sort of thing. And then others, you know, probably would have been a better idea is just a tweet. Like, well, don't, don't put all this money behind, you know, behind this, uh, this hollow joke that, you know, might be, uh, uh, you know, that's not worth uh, 30 seconds uh, on it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it comes out in performance. And as you know, when you're looking at stuff in the editing room, like, oh, yeah. no, that, that, we didn't get that. Or why didn't we get that? How did we miss this? Or, yeah, the... Um as a director, it's like, I'm, I'm accustomed to, because uh, to doing all the work in advance that like coming to the table on the shoot day, there's a lot of decisions you're making on that day. And a lot of times that planning will get thrown out in different ways, the way you're blocked the scene or um, will, will change, but you, you're sort of still standing on having done all that work. And so you kind of know the purpose or you know where things need to go and, so it's like, all right, well, we're going to, I had all this meticulous shots, but we're just going to scrap it and go handheld and move around and be fluid and we'll do it a bunch of different times or whatever. Um, but that like uh, in an environment like where you, you're writing the day before. So now did you, do, do you do, tend to direct the videos too? Or do you have somebody that directs or what's the, tell me about the, just the production process for, for your stuff. Yeah. So uh, most of the time I'm not, uh, I'm not directing. Um, I, you know, might uh, I might have like a note here or there if 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 something's happening, but I think I think a lot of that comes down to trust as well. Where, um, you know, if 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 we have a shoot day and I'm working on other stuff, the idea of like popping in every now and then and being like, hey, could you do like you know, it's like no, there's there's something happening here that you know you need to be here from the start to finish. Like you can't just pop in. It's sort of like all or nothing. Um, so a, a few of the directors that I work with a lot is my, my partner, Greg Burke, he's, uh, directed a ton of stuff for us and he, um, he has that director's mind where he's able to see the big picture. He's, he has all these, uh, all these shots in mind, all this stuff lined up, which for me, I don't like, I, I, I can direct a sort of a locked off, uh, monologue or something like that, or offer some, you know, some details, but to, have an idea on how the camera moves and how we're going to be capturing things. I don't, I don't have that, that skill set, or at least not a, at a level where I'd be like, ah, Greg, get out of here. I got, it. you know, <laughs> I, I got this kid, you know? Um, but I, I think it, it does come down to, you know, a lot of trust. And I'm sure, you know, there are uh, people you work with behind the camera who are your go-tos and you're like, 
I know that that so-and-so is going to nail this and I can get from them what I want. And I, I think that that works with, um, with actors as well. Um, being able to, you know, have, have the confidence in them that, that, that they'll be able to, to give you what, uh, what you need. Um, as you've worked with so many different people, have you had, what's been your experience of people who come in to start to your orbit to work on your stuff and see themselves as being of one mindset and after working with you are like have a conversion experience or come to be more libertarian oriented or more pro free market or whatever uh you know whatever you want to call it I, you know all the labels are getting muddier and weirder by the day so i kind of hate using any of them right left all that stuff but but um yeah have you had what's been your experience of people's own journeys philosophically who work with you or come to work with you on a more regular basis? Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, while some, while the material is definitely, you know, can be controversial or, you know, on hot button issues, uh, if you will, the discussion that happens like sort of in the green room is sort of, I try not to get involved in that. Like, um, you know, you know, as far as politics goes, it's sort of, uh, I know why we're all here today. We're all here to work on this script, to nail it, you know, to do well. So, you know, there are opportunities where we were, I remember we were shooting stuff with, um, we had a pretty young cast. So like people like sort of either right out of college and all that, and they were sitting around. It was during, it was before, it was during the, like uh, way before the democratic primaries. Right. And there were quite a few people there who were all about Bernie, you know, and they were, they were, you know, yep. uh, very energetically, you know, speaking about Bernie and um, they said some stuff and I'm sure I, you know, I could have injected myself and been like, well, you know, I happen to have a problem with X, Y, you know, X, Y, or Z. But at that point, it's sort of best to just, hey, just let them, you know, let them do the thing, stay out of it and, and have, uh, have a discussion. Uh, but when it comes to uh, sometimes people will, will hit me up afterwards, you know, sort of in private to talk and, and I actually had a, a, an actor who I, we work with, um, we, we worked with quite a bit, uh, hit me up and asked if, if they could talk to me about something that, that was troubling them and they were particularly, uh, you know, kind of scared to talk about. And the way that they put it is that they, uh, they're afraid to talk about this with any of their friends, you know, that they don't know how they would be judged. And it was a really, they, they, we talked on the phone and it was just about how with the the street protests they were a little troubled by uh black lives matter protests being predominantly white in many instances and we were wondering why most. yeah yeah and and wondering why that you know why that is and and i said well i think that's a you know that's a reasonable question to ask and there's no reason why you should feel um you know, scared to have that conversation and there are all all manner of reasons why maybe you know it's taking place in a neighborhood that is not predominantly african-american you know so what you know um but it was it was sort of that thing where uh i don't i i guess it's because i make the kind of stuff that i make and i'm sort of outspoken in the way in the way that i am that they trusted that they can talk to me about this stuff and that i wouldn't judge them and i wouldn't uh wouldn't be um you know, jumping down their throat. And 
I've found that a lot of the libertarians that I know and that I associate with are those kinds of people where we are open to talk ab about stuff um, and we're not going to jump down your throat and shame you. Not to say that there aren't libertarians that, you know, that, that are like that, um, but, but I've been very fortunate to have people where, where it's like, no, you, you know, you can come to me, child come to me and so you know tell me what's on your mind tell me what weird belief you have and and let's you know let's uh you know let's investigate i've been thinking we should legalize organ donation uh for money but i know it's only pop it's only legal in iran so i feel like i can't <laughs> it's like no we're with you man we're markets you, and everything man. but like are you per are you persian like uh, <laughs> is it are you okay with me talking to you about this like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's um, it, it's it's yeah. When when uh, my wife and I we 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 first bought a bought a house in Austin, uh, we moved into this little cul-de-sac, and you know Austin's a pretty crunchy town, and you know so we had, Lee. I got home from a trip, and Lisa said, I think some of the neighbors are kind of talking about us because like because at the time. Um, like I went on Stossel for something for one of my videos and she might've said like, oh yeah, he's in New York. He's going on John Stossel's show. And it got people talking like, who are these people that moved in? Like, what are they weirdos? Like what's going on? And so we had a meet your libertarian neighbors, uh, <laughs> um, uh, like, uh, you know, brunch or <laughs> brunch <laughs> and, the, the, the difference between being able to have conversations with people in person where you look them in the eyes where you are sharing you don't even have to be sharing much but just you're physically sharing space you have to deal with the physical presence mm -hmm. and 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 every other form of trying to engage people on something where there's like contention and disagreement i think is it's like a category difference it's like you can't i think one of the biggest challenges that we that you face in being persuasive and not wanting to take make like cheap shots and mm -hmm. pull the sort of Naomi Klein like in dishonest, you know, walk you through a walk you through like a like kind of propaganda. If you don't want to make propaganda, you're kind of left in this hard spot if you're not gonna engage people in person and have a real dialogue because you're yeah. left trying to make an argument um, without any of those tools. So. Uh, what, what, how do you think about that? I, I feel like comedy is one of the tools that's really useful for that. Um, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, obviously you do comedy work. So, so, but like, why do you agree? I, I assume you agree, but you know, assuming so like, why, why does comedy work? Well, well, I think uh, I agree with you 100% that you know, as, as many gifts as social media has given us and, you know, the ability to communicate people all over the world, the fact that, you know, during, you know, lockdowns or uh, like this, that so we are able to talk, you know, you're in Texas, I'm in, I'm in, I'm on the East coast. Um, we, there, there is a lot that we've given up as well about the important, you know, just how important those, those human interactions are. Um, and then one of the things that I found is, you know, sort of like, you know, the purpose of an internet argument isn't to win, it's to waste the other person's time. So it's like, how much time can I, you know, how, how long can I keep you from living? 
from doing something, you know, like that's sort of like what the, what the purpose is. And, and what I, what I've found is, uh, this particularly happens if I, if I know somebody or I have a relationship with somebody online who says something that I, that I find, you know, maybe hurtful rather than calling them out in the public forum, I'll message them directly and just be like, Hey, what do you, you know, what do you mean by this? And being willing to offer myself up to, Hey, if this is really important to you, let's go have coffee. Let's talk about it in the flesh, you know, and, and obviously things are a little different now, but, but, right, right. but offering that, and what you what I often find is it's not that important to people, right? And it's sort of like, uh, you know, when you start to when you start to see, especially when you have a family, when you have kids, uh, the importance of the most important relationships that you have, uh, that other stuff that you can let go, uh, you can let go a little bit. And I always try to remind myself that um, all the people I love and respect love and respect me. So it's like, cool, I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm doing well, I'm doing well on that front. And I think, I think when it comes to comedy and the, the ability that, you know, I think what, what comedy offers you is uh, there's something about the uncontrollable laughter that is, that is just great, that can break through, you know, so many, uh, so many walls. So if it's in person, you know, at a live event, that's one thing. If you're able to make somebody laugh or giggle, uh, with a meme, with a one-liner, or something like that, you've 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 already um, broken through a little bit. Uh, and I think there's something too with comedy where the fact that I am a comedian, that all the people who know me, they know that I'm a comedian. There's always that chance that I'm just messing around, that I'm being silly, you know, that I don't really mean this, which I think makes some things easier for other people to take if they're like, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't like that. I could still, you know, deal with him because there's no way he believes that, you know? And <laughs> so it's, it's fun to sort of have that, you know, that kind of trickster role, I guess, where you can kind of go, um, you know, go either way uh, uh, on it. And, I, I, you know, when it, when it comes to comedy, I just wish more and more people were, 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 were willing to laugh, uh, were willing to, you know, uh, make fun of themselves. And um, if I could talk about just, just for, just for a second, uh, uh, there's a comedian named J.L. Coven and J.L. is someone I've known for, for a really long time. He, I first met him uh, when I was doing uh, open mics uh, in the village. Like he would drop in every now and then uh, he's, he had been doing comedy a while. Like even, even up to that point, he used to open for Patrice O'Neill and he has a number of, I think he has like six comedy albums. Uh, and he's one of those guys who's been grinding for so long and only recently has really blown up because he does the best impression of Donald Trump ever. Like it's just unbelievable, uh, an incredible impression of, of, of Donald Trump. And I'm so happy that, that, that people are, are finally seeing his work. And recently he wrote a blog post about something that he's been experiencing uh, where he's, he's a liberal, he's a, I believe a Democrat, uh, and he's been seeing a lot of people uh, tell him, you shouldn't make that joke. You should take this joke down. And a lot of it is coming from people on the left telling him, you should not make that joke. You should take this down. And it's troubling because for him in comedy, it's like he would never tell someone, you shouldn't make that joke. You should take it down. 
he would he might criticize a joke and be like, hey, that kind of sucked and like that. But he, but but that idea of taking it you know taking it down never crosses his mind. And uh, in his blog post, he he writes about how a lot of that has to do with what social media has done. It's it's opened up uh, you know audiences that otherwise wouldn't be into your work. Now they can see your work. They're you know they're seeing it for the first time. And some of them, their response is a more of a censorious one, which is to get rid of it. Um, and it made me think about how I think one of the issues with with comedy, especially in this cancel culture, if you will, is that as that social media has opened up the audience, it's also opened up the ability for people who aren't comedians to be comedians, at least in these little on these little uh, on, on these platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and all that. So where comedy used to be a type of thing where we get to talk about stuff you're not able to talk about at the office. We get to be irreverent. We get to curse. We get to be raunchy. We get to do all that. You can't do that at the office. Now, a person who with an office job, with a corporate job, can be a little raunchy, can be a little, uh, a little this. They can be a little comedian, right? But the problem is uh, those suck. people, those, <laughs> they suck, but those people have to answer to PR, yeah, to, to, um, to HR. Human, uh, you know, human resources, right? And it's almost like because those people have to answer to HR, the real comedians now have to answer to HR. It's sort of like comedy has been brought under this umbrella of like a corporate safetyism, right? Where, where we are not, um, where we are making a uh, uh, a hazardous, uh, you know, unsafe working environment for other people, and. And I think that's a that's a real problem where it's like no no comedians are supposed to mess you up we're supposed to joke about things you're not supposed to joke about um, and unfortunately a lot of people I think I think we we've sort of been uh, excuse me the, uh, the amazing siren I don't know if you guys can hear it but it's uh, it's just going by uh, <laughs> well you know you can't have you can't talk to anybody in New York without at least one siren that, that that's right and and I feel like the rules are you know the rules are changing um, and um, and I think we're going to lose a lot of, I don't know, I think we're, I think we're losing something with that, but it, it, it leaves, uh, leaves a lot of room for people to be like, you can't say that, take it down. Or worst case, you will never work again because you didn't take it down or you said that. Yeah, it, this is, this is, um, it's been very hard to think about. Like, I, I think first and foremost, I'm like an econ geek, you know, it's, it's the thing that I always come back to. And I, I, uh, Hello, and I, um, I, uh, I've generally avoided the kind of culture wars in my work because it's so divisive, and just because even the way I think about what a free society is all about is like, you don't need to have a culture war. You can just have pluralism. You can be over here believing what you want and living your life your way, and I can be over here doing what I want, and. There's no, like, it's a, the war mentality is a zero-sum game. To be like, no, I have to censor myself and you have to censor yourself. There's no scarcity of airtime. Mm -hmm. um, but the way it does seem like this mentality, this, censor, this censorious mentality, and I think you hit the nail on the head with calling it safetyism, this sense in which, like, there's been feature creep in the PTSD literature. Like mm -hmm. it used to be like, no, no, you have, you, you aren't like being triggered is a term used for people that have experienced 
actual trauma. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a thing that's a real thing. It's not, you made me uncomfortable. You triggered me. That's like, you, you know, when I think about someone who's actually gone to war, hearing, hearing a kid say they're triggered because someone they don't like came to their campus or someone holds an opinion they don't like on the internet. It is, it's so out of proportion with what that means. It's like, no, I like, <laughs> like my, my uncle Tony was in Vietnam and I just, I could, I always like conjure him. Like what, what would big tone say to this kid <laughs> or this young adult at this point? Um, and big tone would, <laughs> Big Tone would, would issue triggering, ex, triggering experience number two in every case <laughs> to, to that person. Like, oh, you think you're triggered? I'm going to give you some triggering. Here's the yeah. stuff I experienced in Nam. Uh, um, I don't, know, and, and, I don't and, know what to make of it. I don't know what yeah, to I, do with it. Yeah, it's, it's really tough. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm getting a, my internet connection is unstable. So um, I'm hopefully, hopefully you guys are hearing me. No, no, we're hearing you fine. Tell my broken. parents I love them. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, uh, Tim, uh, Tim Dillon uh, is, a, is a great comedian and, and he had a tweet uh, kind of about this where it's like the same people and I'm going to mess it up he, he, but he said like the same people who consider it um, you know an unsafe work environment to, to have a conservative on staff are totally okay with burning down buildings uh, in a street where it's like they don't feel safe uh, with a conservative working you know in the cubicle next to them or even remotely but they're totally cool with, um, you know, some arson, some, you know, some, uh, some explosions out, out in the street. And, you know, we sort of got, we've, we've come to that point where, you know, speech is violence, silence is violence, but violence isn't violence. And uh, I don't know what, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know uh, what to make of it either. I, uh, I'd like to believe that we're, that this is, some form you know people always like to talk about pendulum swings like because for whatever reason there's something natural in binaries it's left and right it swings one direction and then another it's like well it might be swinging in a lot of directions it might be you might get you know you think it's out there and it comes and hits you from the side but it does feel like there's a we're in a moment that's prone towards some form of correction and the thing that's a, the thing that worries me almost as much as how far it's swinging out is that the countervailing, the sort of counter reaction isn't necessarily good either. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. um, you know, have you, you know, what's your sense of that? Like, I mean, for comedy, it seems like it's, it's, it's weird because comedy always feels to me like it exists in two worlds. And I'd love, I'd love to, I was talking to Andrew Heaton about this and I'd love to get your take. I feel like it exists. The framework I always have for comedy is you have the comedy of the familiar and the comedy of the strange or the absurd and the comedy of the familiar, like is Sebastian Maniscalco Mm. or Jerry Seinfeld. It's like observational, you know, comfortable, like I laugh at King of Queens because they are like me, my family. And then like, I, so it's familiar and it's like, there, there's, it's comfort food comedy. And then the comedy of the strange, like in the weirdest would be like uh, Tim and Eric, you know, mm-hmm. but in, in, 
it's it's almost more about pace and syncopation and knocking you out out of kilter it's not necessarily tethered to reality so much as it is absurd and like itchy almost <laughs> like it's like mm -hmm. oh oh like a like it's like a tickle um you know how do you think about like the different because there's there, like absurdism versus that more um observational comedy are like very different and it seems like like with stand-ups they tend to fall in these different categories i'm sure more there's more than one more than more than these two but these stand out to me how do you you know does that resonate how do you think about that how do where do you place yourself in in this because uh these different frameworks because sometimes you i think you try so many different things i think you're experimenting a lot thanks yeah, yeah. um thanks for even saying um, uh, saying that I might be in this world. That's good. That's awesome. Um, well, I, I, I recently, recently, maybe like a, like a year ago or something like that, uh, started watching Buster Keaton. Um, and man, if you want to see stuff that just holds up, that is surreal and just awe-inspiring, what that man is able to do with physical comedy, it's just incredible. Um, and you made me start thinking about um, Kovacs. I think, it, I think it's Ernie Kovacs, who used to do these very surreal um, uh, specials in, uh, in comedy that were, that, were, that were really brilliant. Um, and Bernie, yeah, yeah, Bernie Kovacs, right? No, is Bernie, it Bernie yeah. Kovacs? Is it Ernie or Bernie? I, I think it might be Bernie Kovacs. I'm Googling it, but it's, for some reason, all that comes up is Bernie COVID. It's like, oh. Oh, God. is he okay? I <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, uh, well, what it, that, that, that would be such an unfortunate real name from somebody, Bernie COVID, <laughs> uh, especially in these, in these times. Um, well, it's I think- Ernie, Ernie Kovacs. Ernie, Ernie Kovacs. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, I almost feel like because of so much of the stuff that I try to work on is is, is satirical that that you you do, you know, you want to take these, um, you know, take these ideas to the you know, to the, their absurd limits, um, so that that lends itself for that. But I think, uh, uh, but I think like especially with with stand up comedy, uh, if you're going to be watching somebody for an hour, or at least it might just be the, the way that I that, that I perform. Uh, that you do want some of those, some reality, you know, some, some real, you know, touchstones there that, that, you know, you can relate, okay, this guy's married, this guy has a kid and, and all that. You bring up Sebastian Maniscalco and that guy has me howling, howling, uh, watching him, watching him perform the stuff he does with his dad. It's, it's, it's just incredible. Uh, he's, he's yeah, that, hit, a, that sounds like that. He, that, that hits home for you, especially. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, it's like any. I think anybody with an immigrant dad, like just you know, just just watch, uh, uh, just watch him. But I, I think, uh, you know, overall, I, I think you you know you try to find how you how you connect with people while being original and you know, true to yourself. You know, like uh, the stories that you're gonna that that you're gonna tell, the more you know, the realer they are for you. Um, the real they're going to be for people like Sebastian Maniscalco. He's a guy who plays a heightened version of himself, but the real version of himself is a dude who gets bothered by everything, you know, and, and I see so much of myself in that. Like uh, he has a story about going to this beautiful, like luxurious hotel and seeing a guy, you know, at check-in with I think flip-flops and, 
and one of those coolers, you know, th- you know, you know, rolling <laughs> that thing behind him. And he's like, he just can't, he just can't wrap his mind around. It. It's going to bother him for the rest of his life. There's a good chance that he'll be on his deathbed. And the last image in his mind will be this guy, you know, with the, with a terrible tattoo and, 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 uh, and all that. Um, but, you know, I think it could be fun trying to, you know, kind of go from, you know, one world to the, you know, to the other when uh, in, in comedy, but I think it's a, it's a challenge no matter what you're doing. I don't know if that, that answered anything. We're just, <laughs> well, no, I think, I think it's, um, I think it's, uh, it's interesting because I think there's, um, there's like underlying patterns in a lot, in, in, in creative works, I feel like, you know, certainly in storytelling. I mean, right. It's like, there's, what is it? There's only like seven stories, story, story archetypes that you can basically slot virtually everything ever done into. It's like, mm-hmm. there's, no, there's nothing new under the sun. So it's interesting to think about what the, you know, if there is a set of archetypes in, in comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was directing commercials, I, like my, my, most of my work was like, commer- like guy comedy. And it was partly because I worked at Spike TV. So I was always... Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, um, you know, dad getting hit in the nuts by a baseball from his son. <laughs> right. the, the highlight for me, I grew up, I don't know about you. I, I grew up um, with the Three Stooges, which I'm very happy. I actually have some like really high quality copies of almost all of them. Because wow. they, if, if anything was on, is on the cancel chop, chopping block. I don't know how nobody's done a story yet about three stooges get canceled because there's all kinds of terror. I mean, they've got the horrible, like stereotypical mammy characters galore. Everything about the stooges is unacceptable today, but the, the comedy there, the timing of the physical comedy, that and like Benny Hill, like they, they, they left a big impression on me. Um, and uh, it just makes me think like, why does that work? Like when I, I revisit that stuff and it's like, it still works. Like what's under the surface of it that is clicking. Mm-hmm. You're talking about like Buster Keaton, it still holds up. Like there's like a DNA underneath there that you can learn from if you can kind of crack it and find it and feel it out. Yeah. Do you feel the same way? I mean, do you, do you feel like there's a, there's stuff you've patterns that you've kind of learned over time that, that even if you can't articulate that they're there for you? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I was wondering, you know, because I'm, I'm 38 and I'm like, who's, you know, who had probably like the biggest impact on me, like comedically. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like, whether like you have no choice in the matter sometimes because it, it's all about when you were born and, and what you were exposed to. And, and I think about it and I, I'm like, man, like, how would I say Jim Carrey? Like Jim Carrey probably has like the biggest, you know, the biggest impact, but I'm I'm not like a, uh, you know a, a uh, you know loud you know sort of you know kind of hysterical you know character like I don't have these really big big characters and like that, but yet there's a sensibility there where it's sort of like I can look back on Jim Carrey stuff and it still holds up for me. Um, yeah, where I, yeah, well I guess it's a little different because I mean obviously the Stooges are from so long ago. Um, but yeah, it would be interesting to just like, like you say, like crack the DNA of that and say like, why is that, why does that work? Why does that work so well? Um, yeah, there's, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe there isn't, maybe it's, 
there's so many different, I think in stand-up in particular, since it is, it's like, it's that singular person. Yeah. And it's like, you know, is there, is there a, does George Carlin fit into a broader type mm -hmm. that you could group other people with that are like, you know, Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and uh, whatever. I mean, again, I'm not like the, I'm not the ultimate connoisseur in this stuff, but the, uh, um, well, I remember there, there was always a um, sort of a debate uh, when it comes to like Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy, you know, that early on there was a debate, you know, sort of like uh, Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor. Um, and I think Richard Pryor even admitted that when he kind of first started out, he was doing his Bill Cosby, like he was sort of, you know, doing that. And it wasn't until he broke free and started talking about his life and all the, you know, all the problems that he, you know, that that you know his stuff it, uh you know a lot of his comedy is like in pain you know it really you know comes there um and then you know comparing him and eddie murphy at, at the time where even though um you know even though they're you know much different in, in age and, and also when they were uh you know when they were you know coming up they, they were they were often compared to each other and i think oh yeah i think it was like a, there, uh, on youtube there's a dick cavett interview with eddie murphy where dick cavett brings uh uh, brings that up um, and, and sort of asks like a 20 year old Eddie Murphy, uh, you know, the deal. Uh, and, and what I, what I found was like Richard Pryor is one of my favorite uh, stand-up comedians. Eddie Murphy is also one of my favorite stand-up comedians, but Eddie Murphy is a rock star. Like the way you watch him on stage, you're not watching Richard. Like, you know, like Richard Pryor, he's, he's uh, a, you know, a self-deprecating, uh, man that uh, there's like there's failure there there's 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 loss there uh, people feel comfortable heckling Richard Pryor yelling out from the you know from the stands to you know to to try to get on the record when you see Eddie Murphy he's a he's a rock star you're not you know he he is in 100% control even by the way you know by the way he dresses and there's like a there's a different attitude and muscle there and confidence that um that i think i wonder like now I wonder like oh who are the other rock star you know comedians and i think maybe like andrew dice clay would, would would fall into that or chris rock chris rock has like a very like powerful presence on stage dave Chappelle as well yeah there's um it is it isn't it's it's just interesting these the uh, there's something so interesting about the way that comedy and the way that uh, comedians, um, they occupy a, a place in like entertainment and celebrity that is kind of special because they are, it's, it, you, they're being themselves. And like you said, like in this heightened form and you know, that's not what I, I mean, that's not what acting does. Like you're, you're, you're playing a role. Like you're not being you, even though I think most actors in one level or another are kind of always bringing themselves to it. Like, you know, um, with the rare exceptions, like the sort of Meryl Streep becomes anything she need, wants to be. But most of the time there's some level of kind of fit, like hand and glove fit with your type and with your, who you are and what your nature is. But there's a, but it's one to one. It's a, it, each com comedian is totally singular. They exist alone as their, for for what 
when they really pop and they break through, like all the people you've mentioned, they 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 don't have a comparable. It's mm-hmm. it, it is pretty. It is like especially interesting to me that that the nature of that. Um, so many have come out of a place of pain. So Lou, where what's your? Do you have a place of pain you draw on for your comedy or? <laughs> so a place of pain. Well, I, we I definitely go dark. I go with a lot of you know dark stuff and and uh you know probably fortunate uh, fortunately for me uh um you know wti has a has a certain aesthetic that won't allow me to go as dark as i as i as i would go they're sort of saving me from my uh, <laughs> uh from my uh from myself um uh yeah and i think i you know where where it's funny uh you know the examples you give of like you know a, a guy getting hit in the nuts you know uh, I'm like, I'm always thinking like, well, how can we go darker than that? <laughs> you know, like, like not only is it hitting the nuts, but, but like what, you know, how can we make it more messed up uh, than, than even that? And I think uh, I would say like sort of a, an example of other people who I look up to uh, would be like the kids in the hall where the kids like in the hall, one of my used, favorites of all time used to do some really messed up stuff, you know, like, um, I, I have uh, I have all their seasons uh, that one of these days I'm gonna I'm gonna binge uh, binge watch it and uh, uh, it's it's sort of like you know uh, pushing it and, and going as 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 far as you can. I I um one of my first jobs out of out of college was uh, I worked in a in a in a Thai fusion restaurant where I at the time I had a ponytail. I don't know if you've ever had a ponytail. You ever have you ever gone that far? No, no. I uh I when I was surfing, there was a time I have pictures where I had uh bleached tips and that's Whoa. as that's as far as you go. <laughs> Short hair and bleached tips yeah. and looked like a real uh Jersey, South Jersey or I wouldn't go so far as to say a California dude. I was like yeah. the South Jersey simulacrum of a of a California go. dude. Well, well, I you know so I wrote um, so so that was like my first job, and then the job I got after that was I wrote erotic fiction for a living. So I saw an ad in Craigslist that said, "Would you like to write and edit erotic fiction?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, sure." So uh, I I applied and I had to write an a, a, an erotic fiction you know. Uh, uh, story. So the first erotic fiction story I wrote, I, and I'm not going to get, uh, don't worry, I'm not going to get too, too detailed, was about a, 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 young, a, a young bloke who worked in a supermarket um, and was bagging groceries and was totally in love with the cashier named Loquacious. Um, and I wrote this story and I ended up getting, you know, getting this gig where for, you know, Monday through Friday from 10 to 6, I would sit in a cubicle and write smut, I'd write smut. And when you think about it, like here I am, I'm, I'm writing, uh, uh, what, what's it uh, in college? You, you have expository writing, you're supposed to write persuasive essays, right? Like I'm supposed to craft a story that's going to persuade someone in a sexual manner, which, you know, I don't know who these dudes are that were, you know, subscribing to these things, but, but, but they were there. Um, and uh, you know, you would have the regular stories, but one of the, but, but the biggest line, like the biggest sort of genre of stories were incest stories, right? Which 
you know, crazy. It's insane, right? Like, like the, the biggest the idea line meaning what? Like that was the most demand. The most, the, like, the most demanded stories were incest stories, right? Yeah, and really, I found out. Is this that, is this ending with you being open your eyes to the Russian human trafficking mobs <laughs> of New York? <laughs> like, oh my <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. So, so no, so so uh, what? Uh, there's an end to this. Uh, I swear, I'm trying to figure it out. Um, so. You know, here I am, I'm being paid, I'm like a young kid, I'm like 22, 23, um, to write these stories. And if you look at it from like a literal level, this is horrific. You know, I have a mother, I have, an, I have aunts, this is horrific. But if you look at it through a comedic level, you know, through, hey, this, is, this can be really funny. How can we work on this where not only is it you know enticing to the reader, but making it totally, you know, totally funny? So, you know, you bring in elements of like things that should have no sexual, con you know, context whatsoever. Your mother's drapes, the amount of pillows she puts on a on a bed. So here I am, I'm having a ball making this shit up, and then having the extra, you know, the, the hilarity that ensues, the idea that some guy's watching this and is actually you know, getting, uh, you know, getting some arousal from it. So, uh, was this the, was this the path to your quick firing or was, would, would, did, Oh, I only, I only lasted a couple of months. Like after a while <laughs> I was like, I can't dude, I can't do this anymore. Man. I had to like turn out something like either 10 original pages a day, or it was like 12. If like to rewrite other stories, it's just insane. Uh, just, a you know, uh, and I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have, you know, like it was in, in comedy, I didn't. I was I was kind of lazy. I didn't have that good of a work uh, work ethic. Um, but you know, that's sort of an example of you know being able to sort of sublimate this really atrocious just idea with comedy and sort of make. And so, in a way, like my my two months there was like me basically telling the you know the famous the uh, the aristocrats joke. You know, sort of like. Right. No, no, no. So well, I think in a way, what you've really said to sum up our conversation is, is that finding a way to make um, incest funny was the necessary precursor to doing libertarian comedy. <laughs> Dude, I'm gonna, the LP needs me now, man. They really I mean, need me. If, if if there was ever a, a a group of misfits that looked like the the product of uh, of of continual incest, it might be the libertarians. If you get them all, put them in a room, it's like, uh oh, the genetic pool here is some, something's off. Something's yeah, something's gonna rise. <laughs> um, <laughs> as we come to a close, uh, you know what what's your? You've managed to bring together passions into a job, which is always awesome when you can pull it off and. You've got a family, you provide for them through making comedy content with philosophical message. Not an easy task. What is your advice for people who want to pursue um, a creative career, uh, you know, skills, tools? What, 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 do you, what, do you, what do you have to offer? What do you have to offer your, your, your younger self mm -hmm. who's come out of school having pissed away $150,000 with dreams of being a poet and now has to <laughs> be confronted with a world that doesn't care about how they feel. 
and needs to make it on their own in a big old city like New York? What, what, what's your advice? Right. Um, well, one thing, I, one thing I would say is um, obviously don't expect anything to be given to you. Don't expect that stage time to be just given to you. Definitely don't expect the ideas you have to just, you know, poof, one day, you know, that idea is now a, is now a feature. Um, put the work in, never stop putting the work in, never stop writing, never stop creating, because uh, what you want to have is when the opportunity presents itself, you want to have the, that body of work to say, well, this is what I have. This is what I've been working on. So, you know, I, I joke about being in that comedy duo with, with Greg and Greg really being a workhorse and having that director's mind and seeing the big picture. And I was really lucky to have that because he took, a, he brought a lot out of me so that, you know, after how, however many years of working together, we had, you know, dozens of videos, some of them really high, you know, high quality videos. We had dozens of scripts. We know what the process is like to rewrite. Um, we know what it's like to take notes. We know what it's like to be pissed off at the notes that you're being given and think that you have, that you know what's actually supposed to be done and then uh, actually go into the manuscript, make those changes and say, oh, you know what, that person was right. That artistic director, they were right. This is much better. So we know what it's like to uh, be humbled, but also to, to get, um, get well-earned success as well when something, when something does hit. And um, if you're able to put that together, especially if you're young, especially if you, if you have the time um, uh, to, you know, to set aside to work on that stuff, when the opportunity is there and someone says, show me what you got, you got to have something to show them what you, show them what you, what you have. Um, and, um, it, it's so funny you're saying this because I actually have a, a young person in my life who's sort of asking for advice. And this is the, this is the kind of advice I'm trying to impart to him. You know, it's like, it's like, get that work done, get those materials out there. And when the chance is there, nail it, you know, kill it. I mean, I think, um, I think that's such great advice. And I think one of the things that, you know, I, my son is 15 and he's he's very he's quite stoic for a 15 year old so he even laments of his generation being oversensitive but i think something that they're gonna these kids are gonna have to overcome is you, you've got to be comfortable with the discomfort yeah 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 like so many of the things you've described and talked about in our conversation are putting you outside your comfort zone they're making you i mean I think if you're going to endeavor to be creative, you've got to be prepared to feel like a failure on a regular basis yeah. forever. And I know I, you're, you're almost can never escape a sense of a kind of imposter syndrome. And, um, and you know, being able to stay sane with that looming is for me, one of the hardest things. Cause I'm always judging myself. Like I'm not doing enough this isn't working. Why don't I have this done and that done? And mm -hmm. I've always wanted to do that and I haven't done it yet. And, and, um, you know, you have to like find turn that into an engine of, of being productive rather than just like, you know, sort of a, a turning inward and shutting down and giving up. One of, uh, 
So my, my son, he's four months, he's four months old. So 15 just sounds insane. Like that sounds like a eternity. But uh, one of the, one of my favorite, you know, one of my favorite things uh, that we do is every night it's bath time. Then after bath time, get him in his pajamas and, and we read to him. So I, I, I do most of the, uh, uh, the, the, the reading. And the other night um, we, we've been reading, uh, uh, where the sidewalk ends by Shel Silverstein, right? It's really brilliant stuff. Um, and I'm not just saying it as a failed poet who, you know, <laughs> but some really brilliant stuff. And man, the, the other night I was having, you know, a similar thing of like that imposter syndrome, you know, that, that, that thought of, of, of being an imposter, of, of not having more skills in certain areas and all that. And one of the poems that we read was a poem called, I think it was like our, it's orchestra, but like our orchestra or something like that. And the whole poem is about, if you don't have a drum, beat your belly. If you don't have a trumpet, play your nose, play with what you got, you know? And it, and it really, it, it really, really hit me, uh, it hit close to home. And I think I'm, I am becoming a little bit more emotional as a, as a, <laughs> as a dad, but it's like, damn, man, like, play what you got and play it well and, and play it as best as you can. And yeah, go for it. Lou, thanks for taking the time. Uh, keep doing the great work you're doing. It's exciting to see uh, prolifically good work being out there. And, um, and I'll continue to be a fan and be pushing, pushing your stuff. Thank you, brothers. I'm I'm really honored that that uh you know you sat down and had a talk with me. So I've I've been a fan of yours for a long time as well. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.